0: Welcome to the Leading Voices with ULI, a podcast of the Urban Land Institute. In this podcast series, we interview city builders who use innovative approaches to create healthier, more economically vibrant communities with character and a high quality of life. These leaders provide inspiration to those of us looking to play a role in building better cities.
1: Hi, this is Matt Sleppen, host of Leading Voices with ULI. In my day job, I lead Terra Search Partners, a real estate search firm based here in San Francisco. In my in-between hours, I'm the host of this podcast series where we get to explore the work and personal stories of exceptional leaders in the real estate world. Today's interview is with Janet Marie Smith. She's the Senior Vice President of Planning and Development for the L.A. Dodgers, She's instrumental in the redevelopment of Dodger Stadium, as she has been in the redevelopment of Fenway Park in Atlanta. And most importantly, she was the creator of Camden Yards, which was the first downtown ballpark in 70 years. So she really started a movement. She's a fascinating woman. She has lived a bi-coastal life. She's a project manager. She's an architect. She's a designer. But when we think in the real estate world of a project manager and all that they are able to do, she's done it and she's done it fabulously. You'll have an interesting conversation. An apology in advance, please don't mind my sniffling on the podcast I had a cold the day that I interviewed Janet Marie. I hope you enjoy. Good morning, Janet Marie. It's Matt Slepin.
0: Good morning. It's fun to hear from you this morning. It's a nice nice break break in the action as we head toward opening day here at Dodger Stadium.
1: Oh my God, absolutely correct. So maybe let's start there. We're going to ramble all through your life and career in the conversation, but maybe the place to start is what you're doing now. You're the Senior Vice President of Planning and Development for the Dodgers. You're changing, renovating Dodger Stadium, I think. Talk about what your job is, what that means, and what the opportunities, pitfalls, and challenges are.
0: Well, Dodger Stadium is the third oldest ballpark in the major leagues now. And having opened in 1962, it, it, it's the only park that's of the mid-century modern era. It's fascinating in every regard and different from its brethren in every regard. It's carved in the hillside of Chavez Ravine. these beautiful views in one direction overlooking downtown Los Angeles and in the other off to the the St. Gabriel Mountains and Elysian Park, one of the most beautiful parks in America. And the Dodgers have maintained Dodger Stadium well over its 55 years, but it hasn't morphed into holding the kinds of fan amenities that we're used to today and arguably it's got the best views of the game but once you get back to the concourse when guggenheim partners and my boss van Kasten took over in 2012 it, it was deficient on a number of levels our our fans and our players alike were still living in 1962 and not in a good way The work that we've done the last four years has been to invest over $150 million into the park, largely in fan amenities, building wider concourses, constructing plazas at each of the 13 entrances, expanding the restrooms, building new concessions, building kids' play areas, redoing the scoreboards. We took out all the seats at the field level, went down, built ourselves a basement, and constructed a new clubhouse that was more than four times as large as the original one, uh, so when fans come today, our goal is that you still feel like this is this is quintessential Dodger Stadium, and you're walking back in time, and that it's really celebrating all those 1960s materials and that sort of beautiful, funky attitude about corrugated metal and concrete block and how it all comes together in a magical way, not something that architects often think of when they think of rocks. Right. Uh, glorious building materials but that's been our challenge and that's been the sort of wonder of it is that it's now architectural style that's become revered and it's respectable again and it's so wonderful to have a chance to think of it anew.
1: And how far through the project are you?
0: Well I don't know where the finish line is I don't know how to answer that. (laughs) There may never be one. One of the wonderful things about sports is that the, the destination is constantly moving. Uh, but we have we've completed the things that matter most to our ownership, and I, and I, I love that they put Joe Fan first. I mean, that's been our real goal: is to make certain that as the largest park in the major leagues, that we weren't just taking care of our premium customer, because that fan is surely important to us. Our revenues are largely based on those who come to the club level in the dugout club and enjoy the field box seats, But but there are forty five thousand others that are that are here that are to cheer the Dodgers on eighty one times a year. And Dodger Stadium is such a landmark and a city full of landmarks and so our you know, at the other end of the spectrum we've worked very closely with Metro to bring mass transit to Dodger Stadium in the form of express buses from two different locations in the city and Every year, our ridership on that increases another few percentage points. And those kinds of planning initiatives are almost harder to tackle than the renovation of of the building itself. But we're we're pushing away on all in all corners, trying to make that happen.
1: Now, Janet Marie, you've done this three, four times, and you've revisited the your signature project. So you've done this for the Braves. You've done it for the Red Sox, and you have famously done it for the Orioles, and now the Dodgers.
0: It's funny we collect them as as objects because as a architect and planner, I don't, I still don't think of myself as being engaged in sports. Though certainly the majority of my career has been in baseball, but I I started out wanting to have an impact on cities in a, in a more significant way than traditional architecture allows, and made a conscious decision. To work at a larger planning level, to seek out public-private partnerships, to look at things that were contextual, and to try and find a role for myself more as a project manager than as a traditional architect or planner. I, I found working in New York City uh, you know, right out of college that once the city put zoning regulations on land and the environmental issues were resolved and the political issues and the financial issues... And, all of the scripted things that happened before something landed on an architect's desk that by then the, the issues that I care most about and particularly how a building functions in the public realm were already determined. And so my goal has always been to find a way to shape that public realm in a way that that, that a building or a space or a park or whatever it is that I've been given this opportunity to work on is bigger than just the project in itself, that it has more meaning in a city and to a to a community and to the owners. Of, in the case of Dodger Stadium, so uh, the trajectory of my career has been in and out of sports. And certainly, having worked for Larry Lucchino on Camden Yards uh, when it opened in 1992 is is no doubt the reason you're calling me today. Because I think I, without the visibility of such a signature project. I, I don't know that my voice would have been as raised to this decibel level, and for that I'm grateful too, because I think that aspect of architecture and what it can mean to have architects in that role is a very important point.
1: And and talk about the difference between architect, engineer, planner, and project manager. And the, and the one comment and something I've heard said and read in articles about you is, you made it happen. And there's something special and unique about that orchestral leader to f- force something to happen or make it happen.
0: There's certainly an element of implementation that I relish having my hands on the reins of that. Because there are a zillion good ideas out there that never get the time of day for a whole host of reasons. You know, they, they weren't presented in the right forum, that they didn't have a champion behind them who was in a position to advocate them. There wasn't funding for it. There wasn't the political will for it. Uh, any number of those things can doom a great idea. And I've really tried very hard in my work to collect the best of ideas. I mean, I, I lead a big team. There's, there's you know, there, there's no question that, there are, you know, hundreds of professionals involved, from attorneys to land use planners to urban designers, architects, engineers, graphic designers, working right. with the various departments in the city, working with the state at that level on transportation. All those things have to come together, and and I think that much of what I have been tasked to do over the years in my projects is to not only take the owner or the president or whoever has right. prescripted what the challenge is, whether it's Larry Lucchino's imagination in 1988 to build an old-fashioned ballpark and an urban center, or whether it's Stan Kasten sitting here at Chavez Ravine saying, I want this place to come alive and I want it to always be viewed as Dodger Stadium, but I want it to feel current. You know, So I, I don't pretend that I'm in a position to author those big ideas, but I've been fortunate that i've been tasked to implement them for people who've had who've had big ideas
1: sometimes that's moving mountains and it's moving mountains to places that exactly particularly for camden yards that to a place that the mountain hasn't been moved before or hasn't been moved in 70 years
0: well that was just such a special project and i i've said this so many times that i I feel like a broken record, but it was such a great alignment of the stars. You know, Governor William Donald Schaefer, who had been mayor of Baltimore before he became governor of Maryland, he he loved Baltimore like nobody ever loved the city. Yep. And he wasn't afraid to show it, and so he he was passionate about downtown. And he knew firsthand that when teams said we need a new place, we need a new place to call home, that they weren't kidding. I mean, the Colts had left on this watch. And that was mortifying to the city and the state to see Uh their NFL team move to Indianapolis. So he wasn't going to let that happen to the Orioles. And Larry Lucchino... Was just who, who was he started out as vice president of the Orioles working, you know, for Edward Bennett Williams as his sidekick and became the president. He had, you know, he was like a dog with a bone. He said, so We can't be building a multi purpose stadium. And that that era, it may not have ended, but it's it's I, the end is inside, it's it's not working, you know. But he he often pointed to the fact that Wrigley Field and Fenway Park, the two smallest parks in the major leagues, had the highest attendance, and there was something to that, and it was more than just the charm of being in an early 1900s park. It had to do with the fact that they were baseball only, that they had quirks about them, that they had an appeal that fans were drawn to, that they were part of the city, they were part of the community. And he wanted to achieve that for the Orioles. And what better place than Baltimore? I mean, I, I don't think he chose that set of circumstances, but there it was. So when Governor Shaper said, I don't care where we build it as long as it's downtown. He's like, poop with the studies. We're we're going downtown. We just invested in a light rail system. We've got a transportation hub that accommodates 250,000 people coming in and out of work at rush hour every day. I know it can take care of 50,000 baseball fans in the evening. You know, his gut was absolutely right. And that combined with Larry's passion for this old-fashioned ballpark and what that could mean, just set the stage for something that, when it opened in '92, uh, you know, I don't think we expected that it would start this wave of of new parks across America. But how validating to see that since it opened, there have been you know 25 new parks built, and the preponderance of them are in cities and have served an important role in the revitalization of their hometown. Baltimore had already established itself on the national scene with the reinvention of the Inner Harbor, transforming it from an industrial area that was was dead because containerization had taken the shipping out to the outskirts of the city, and they transformed it into this inner harbor, and Jim Rouse had done his thing with the festival marketplace, and had made certain that the National, the National Aquarium and the Science Center and the Convention Center and all this collection of uses were put right down on the harbor, so we felt like we could be a part of that tapestry and and help redefine the city of Baltimore, and so it, it's it's nice to know that we've now made it 25 of those 30 years beyond uh-huh. the life of Memorial Stadium, which was a lovely old shoe park, but it was a multi-purpose stadium. And it didn't work for the Colts, and ultimately it didn't work for the Orioles. And the the beauty of Camden Yards, as you say, is it was positioned just perfectly to appeal to what was then 35% of our market, which was D.C. didn't have a team then. So full 35% of our fans were coming from the Washington, D.C. area. And right there on, you know, at the end of the Mark line, at the end of the light rail line, with that stop being only 600 feet from home plate, you couldn't ask for better transit to an urban park. And with the old warehouse sitting on the site, we had sort of the perfect rationale and touch point for all of the architectural things that Larry had dreamed of—the, you know, the idea of asymmetry and seats close to the playing field and scoreboard in the field of play—all of that would have been a little Disney-esque if it had been on a greenfield site. But being right. on an urban site with those constraints, just like the way the Red Sox built the Green Monster when they went out of real estate on Lansdowne Street in Boston. We had an excuse and a rationale for HOK, our architects, to create that that kind of asymmetry at Camden Yards. Uh And and so let's
1: bounce around on some different ideas about this and try to drill down on some, both about Camden Yards and about the meaning of this. And you mentioned Disney-esque. How do you create something from scratch that's authentic but doesn't feel Disney-esque? But that also, particularly in the game of baseball, which has more friggin' history than anything I know, right? There's 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 more to that than in any other sport. But that's the beauty of baseball: tradition and history. So, talk about the balance between Disney-esque and reality and details. And there's some famous details through the projects you've
0: done. Well, I think that, I mean, you have to feel it, right? you got to sort of rest like a soothsayer. You need to go in and sort of really feel the space and listen to your fans. I mean, you can't pretend that you know more than they do. You don't. You just don't, right? You just can't go to Fenway Park and say, we're going to renovate this park, but by the way, you've had your season tickets for 40 years, but I'm going to tell you how we're going to do it. <laughs> you, you can't do that. So one of the things that I really enjoy about my work, and especially in sports, but goodness knows you get it in any project you work on, is to listen to the end user. And that's not to suggest that you, you're you looking to build consensus in a way that you muddy the waters. You're just looking for clues as to what matters and what, what, what do fans care about and what history resonates with them. And one of the challenges of Oriole Park at Camden Yards was how to take that rich history that Memorial Stadium had. And bring it with us. And I say that because it, it, it Memorial Stadium to Oriole fans as well as Colt fans, it really meant something. You know, it uh-huh. it, it it wasn't you know it it had a reputation of being a, a roaring raucous place because its fans were full of passion, and so we didn't want to lose that. We didn't want to we didn't want to lose that energy. Larry had really wanted Camden Yards to have a very intimate feeling. We had studied the older parks and tried to kind of dissect them the same way you might, you might a frog in your fifth grade science class and say, okay, what was it that made them special? How can we develop a checklist of things that we can work with, with RTKL, our master plan team, HOK, the architect, our engineers. I mean, goodness, Bliss and Nitrate, our structural engineer, was as important as anyone on the team because we wanted these steel trusses. And nobody built a ballpark of steel trusses in, you know, 70 years. And everybody was like, well, wait a minute, what about the concrete? What about the post and beam? We're like, no, 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 we don't want that. But it wasn't uh-huh. until HOK went and found Bliss and Nitrate that we ended up with this beautiful steel structure. And then the work that, you know, that, that RK&K did to, to make certain that the transportation Work and David Ashton to make certain that the graphics and the scoreboard and the seat in standard all told a story, and the story it told was that it was easy to get there, that when you walked in, you felt like you'd been there before, and that once you sat down, there was plenty to talk about, whether it was the ornithologically correct bird on the scoreboard that op- that operated as a wind vane, which way it was kicking to uh-huh. the out-of-town scoreboard and which of the other teams were up to... Uh, to the seat in Standard and the 1890s logo that was on that. There was a story everywhere you looked, and that was our goal, was to have the place just feel rich with a history that, that was authentic.
1: So let's go way back for you. And at least for me, baseball starts as a kid and the experiences that I have and memories that I have. So just talk briefly about you grew up in the South. Did you, was baseball part of your life and how did planning get into it? And talk about that.
0: Well, well, I, I guess like everyone, you have all these things that influence your life and, my dad was an architect, so there's no doubt that played a big role in my exposure to the built environment. His practice was almost solely on civic and institutional projects—courthouses, libraries, schools—and so from an early age, whether I liked it or not, that's what, I knew what that's what we were going to see on family All vacations. The time. We were. Uh huh stopping to look at all that stuff, and my mother worked, and I, I don't want to ever discount that, that I, I'm, I'm the mother of three children. I've got a wonderful, supportive husband, and I, I watched my parents navigate their careers in family life with, with a mother that worked, and so that mom was as important as my father, I think, in setting the tone for, for my work life and its balance with my personal life, and I I loved going downtown. I can remember got my mom in high heels, so I must have been you know four or five and going to the downtown department stores in Jackson, Mississippi to shop. And I, I I thought that was breathtaking. I just loved it. There was something about downtown Jackson that I just loved, even though it was you know I look at it today, I'm like, well wait a minute. I thought it was really <laughs> big and important, but I think it was only like six blocks long. But there was something magical about that, and the fact that we treated it as something special, I think stuck with me all those years. And I got really lucky when I graduated from public schools, which which uh, you know, it's a sidebar, but I give my parents huge credit for making certain that my sister and I stayed in public schools during a very turbulent time in Mississippi because I think it gave me a much richer education than I would have gotten, you know, not just in the classroom, but sort of socially being part of Mississippi's change. And by the time wow. I got to college, I was just so fortunate that William McMahon had been tapped to become the dean of a brand new architecture school, and my class was the third class to graduate and there's nothing more exciting than being a part of something new and the tone he set was just uh, so exciting and we had a small class I you know 20 20 30, uh, you know and they counted on half of us dropping out from attrition but right he, he said you know what if you're going to be in Starkville Mississippi and study architecture, we got to make sure you're exposed to a bigger world. It's it, 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 no disrespect to Starkville, but it's a it's a small place here. And so he had created this lecture series that had Ada Louise Huxtable and Philip Johnson and you know all the greats of our time coming to Starkville to speak. We had a field trip every year where we went somewhere else, and then importantly, by the fifth year of architecture school, we had moved to the Mississippi State's campus in Jackson, where where we studied. Urban design, and that was sort of a bigger focus. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think uh-huh. it was actually sort of prescient because by then, at you know, 21, you had enough of a small town or sort of ready for something bigger. So, uh, all of those things sort of wrapped into an interest in cities, I think, for me. And like anyone, I had professors along the way who encouraged me. I I, I I, loved all my extracurricular activities as much as I loved and maybe more than what was going on in the studio. <laughs> professors like Robert Ford just r- really encouraged that. You know, he'd been on the city council himself before he came to Starkville, and so he understood the power of the political world in shaping architecture. And just conversations like that meant so much to me in my formative years, which I hope aren't over, by the way, because I think you never stop learning. I relish any opportunity to get pulled out of my day-to-day world and inserted into something else, even though it's sometimes uncomfortable. You know, you go into a classroom full of challenging young people, and it can be intimidating. But boy, do you come out feeling revived and sort of fresh and like you've learned something yourself.
1: So then you went then you went from Jackson to the big city. So you went to New York to, yeah,
0: well, I just to moved. make this happen. There's, no, <laughs> there's there's no story there. I just packed up and moved and it was just one of the it was one of the best things I ever did for myself. So when I graduated I went back to New York there there was no doubt that that was what I was going to do. Uh, the question was, what? And I just got so fortunate that I got a job working for the Battery Park City Authority before it got started. So at the time I got the job, it still looked like the sleepy 92 acres of land at the tip of lower Manhattan that had been sitting there for almost 30 years sort of waiting for something to happen But I was hired sort of on the eve of Richard Kahn and Amanda Burden sending it off on the trajectory we know today, and so that was a really exciting, you know, first real job out of school for me to be a part of shaping project of that scale, and and no doubt. That has stayed with me today, how you know how to make something that big feel contextual, how to give people a reason to want to come there, how to phase a project so that it's achievable, how do you put the financing together so that you can accomplish something. Because looking at what it's going to be like in 50 years when it's on the drawing board doesn't mean a thing if you can't figure out how, how to step each year right. at a time right. to get to the end goal. Uh-huh.
1: And, and then from there you went to Baltimore, is that correct?
0: Now, I came to Los Angeles and I worked on the redevelopment of Pershing Square, and that was in the 80s. So I moved here in 84 when the Olympics was still defining Los Angeles, and Pershing Square had had a little blip of a moment during the Olympics where it came to life, and the city was proud of it. And I worked for Wayne Rakovich in in the nonprofit organization that he led in order to be able to try and map out a long-term plan for Pushing Square. And it was during the years that I worked on that project that I, uh, I I would often uh, often every day I would leave work downtown and I would go to my my home in Silver Lake and I would pass Dodger Stadium and you know if I felt like it I would just make a right hand turn and pull in and buy myself a ticket and watch watch nine <laughs> innings of baseball or the last seven if I had to work late. And so I feel really fortunate that I knew Dodger Stadium as a fan first, because this park doesn't behave like any other ballpark in America. And uh, when I started working here for Stan Cast in 2012, Stan said, "This is crazy! Like there are no elevators, there's no uh, there's no main concourse, there's no central entrance." And I'm like, "Yeah, I know, but that's what makes it special." But I but I knew that because I had I mean I, I knew that as a fan oh, first, and what I loved about baseball. Is not you don't 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 ask me to be rattling off all the statistics and the pitch count because that's not ever what I love the most. It's how it fits in with the city and how baseball is such a reflection of the city it's in whether you know today everything in america seems a little bit more blended than it did maybe 30 years ago but it was the foods are unique the way the national anthem is sung is different you know in atlanta they put the emphasis on the brave and in baltimore the emphasis is on the o and you know you get you get fish tacos in san diego and that you know the fenway frank in boston and Uh, Just everything about it is sort of a microcosm of the culture, the city it's in, and it's such a a democratic place, right? You're all there rooting for the same thing, and that's a great feeling because there are not many places in America where you are with – you're anonymous in a crowd, and yet you're all cheering for the same thing. And it's, I think, just sort of a great feeling of being alone in a crowd.
1: Early on, you – did your planning work at battery park then you did it in los angeles and i guess that will have moved you into baseball but i'm curious there's some themes in planning some themes in architecture and those themes are and maybe exemplified in two different ways one exemplified by the concept of urban renewal which was big mean and ugly and baseball stadiums which were big mean and ugly and they 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 made great sense they were logical but they didn't feel right and Maybe that there's some themes there that that you helped change, but but you could explore a little bit.
0: Well, I think the whole country was changing, and and hopefully we were ahead of the curve at both Battery Park City and at Camden Yards. And they are sort of kissing cousins in a way because they're Uh both very contextual projects. And they both were, were bucking, even though they were, you know, years apart, they were bucking the trend of, of the tower in the park kind of planning. And the multipurpose stadiums were born of that same kind of architectural attitude, the sort of tower in the park thing, wipe it out, start over. And I know your audience knows this story much better than I do, but the, the Housing Act of 1949 you know, just gave planners across America a blank check to go in and wipe out acres and acres of the city, in, under the name of urban renewal. And I don't think we would do that today. We'd be much more sensitive socially, politically, to as well as perhaps architecturally to those issues. But that wasn't what was going on at the turn of the century. And of course, America sort of late to react to those things, but that you had a confluence of things. You had this attitude about urban renewal that had cities wiping out, you know, hundreds of acres at a time in the name of something new. And then it's funny sitting here in Dodger Stadium telling this story, but Walter O'Malley played a significant role when his owner of the Dodgers in Brooklyn, you know, he knocked on Robert Moses's door repeatedly trying to get mm-hmm. some help acquiring a site to build a new stadium in Brooklyn, having deemed Ebbets Field too small for baseball and not, not enough Parking now the automobile's king and he needs better transit to the ballpark. He wants a place for cars, so he's trying to build a new stadium in Brooklyn, ironically, you know, right where the new Barclays Center is. Right. And and Moses famously says to him, "I do not see it in the public interest to help you with your private endeavor." I mean, it's that's almost verbatim. You, the right. City Museum of New York has all that correspondence and and so he did the only thing he felt he could do. He. He reluctantly entertained the overtures of the city of Los Angeles to come and look at the the West Coast as an option. And the site that Dodger Stadium is on was cleared in the name of a housing project built under that, you know, conceived under that same umbrella. There was going to be this big Mitchell-Lama housing project, and they had cleared Chavez Ravine of all of its homes waiting for this thing to happen. Well, it, it never happened. And so when the federal government sold the land back to the city of L.A., it was with the caveat that it'd be used for a public purpose. So what an irony that Moses in New York says, I don't see any public purpose in your private endeavor. And the city of L.A. turns that on its ear and says, it's in the greater interest of Los Here Angeles is. for us to have a team and to have 3 million people a year flocking. This is, more, this is more than just a private endeavor. This is civ- a civic identity. And once that happened in 1958, Every city in America bent over backwards to do exactly what Moses wouldn't do and find a way to justify using the the mechanism of a public funding of a stadium, often under the guise of, okay, it's going to serve more than one use. We're not going to do it just for this owner. We're going to do it for these three things. And to be able to have a concert venue, a football venue, a baseball venue, all these things housed in one building... So it was born of an attitude about urbanity that that was uh, let's clear it out and start over. It was born of an attitude about architecture that was very much about object architecture, and it was born of, uh, of a public and fin- uh, public financing rationale that was justified under that guise. And then I think it ran its course. I don't know what else to say. It just ran its course. You know, we we stopped. Building big projects like that, they were they weren't financeable for one thing. They could only be done with public money because it wasn't private money wasn't going to go in and do hundreds of acres at a time. And so there was a change in attitude based on the reality that you're doing that, and it wasn't socially correct to be you know running down acres and acres of your city that way rather than rebuilding it up. And mm-hmm. architecture was changing, and 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 was we were leaving that very modern era and moving into a postmodern era that was a was in some respects a, a, a relative of that notion of contextualism. So you know, I, it's a little bit of a rambling thought, but there's right. a trajectory there that got us to where we are today, where we we just we don't treat those projects that way. And now there's so much money in sports it was sort of back to the point where the public sector is saying, "We'll help we'll do whatever we can to help we'll get we'll help you with the infrastructure we'll 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 help you with land with with siding the the park we'll, we'll help you in some cases we'll help you with the financing but there's a much more balanced approach to that public private partnership from a financial perspective today too.
1: You have a challenging lifestyle. you have a husband that works three kids. And your current job is based in Los Angeles, but your home's in Baltimore, and it's been this way for a long time. So how, how do you make that work?
0: Well, you start with a patient, supportive husband. <laughs> so there you go. Let's start by giving Bart Harvey credit. <laughs> and I, I, I'm, I'm happy you, you you raised that because I I realize that there are not a lot of women in my line of work, whether you're defining it as construction architecture, sports, however you define it. Um, when you it,
1: intersect it, them, there's very fr- few.
0: Well, it's kind of crazy that you go through school and it's 50% of your graduates in college are, are women, and yet it, it, you don't see that balance in the workplace. But that's we, I, I, we, uh, that's that's just a statement of fact. We can dissect that later. But I, well, I, I hope that I... I hope I can make my uh, my gender proud, I'd be the first to say that I couldn't do it without BART support. And his advocacy for that, and I, I think my kids would say they'd rather have a happier mom, and one that's uh, that's challenged by her work than one that was omnipresent and and not feeling invigorated by by what I do. And and they uh, all three have turned out pretty well. I can't call them completely baked yet because I've still got two thirds of them in college. But you know, I I've, I've been lucky that my career was. Well established by the time I got married and had kids, and, and I, I, I think that made a big difference. I was I was lucky in that regard too. But by the time I had kids, I had already completed Camden Yards, and I was working for Stan Kasten on on the project in Atlanta and commuting from Baltimore to do that, which didn't start out as a plan initially. Uh, Stan Caston, who is president of both the Atlanta Hawks and the Atlanta Braves, and for a time the Atlanta Thrasher—is that how he was running three teams? Uh-huh. I can't say. But he approached Larry Lucchino, my boss in, in Baltimore, and and said, "Look, you know, Camden Yard is about to open, and we're about to get started on planning for this Olympic Stadium in Atlanta, and I got to make sure it doesn't turn into Montreal. Is there any chance that there, that Janet could help us? And there could be, you know, we we share share her." share her time. And so the, the 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 idea of commuting to my job wasn't something that was designed. It was just something that happened because I was on loan for a few years and then it sort of just morphed into something bigger. And pretty soon I was commuting to Atlanta for seven years and I had all three kids working for Stan while I was commuting to <laughs> Atlanta. And uh-huh. That never seemed to bother anybody. And then went back to baltimore for a couple of years and larry lucchino called me and said we're you know part of a group that's looking to buy the red Sox, and everybody else says they're going to tear down Fenway and build a new one and we were thinking maybe you might try to renovate it do you think we're crazy could you come and take a look and i said sure yeah i'll come take a look but you know one look and i was i was seduced you were sold. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, i'm doing this so i commuted to boston for eight years and then I went back to work for the Orioles, and to work when Peter Angelos agreed to um, move the spring training site to Sarasota, and it coincided with the Camden Yards twentieth anniversary, so Mr. Angelos wanted me to work on some upgrades to Camden Yards after twenty years. It was particularly, its food service was feeling dated, and its history had changed, and there were things he wanted to celebrate. Of course, I, I relished a chance to be back, and. It, 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 what, one of the nicest little sidebars is, is, is he and Mrs. Angelo's made sure I went back to my old office, and it was just kind sort of fun, you know. <laughs> oh, you could have great. blindfolded me, and I walked through the building, but I didn't know a soul there because everybody had changed. But anyway, it was that was great. But the irony of it is, even though I was quote back home during my kids' high school years, my project was in Sarasota, so I was still on the plane, you know, going down to Florida. And then when Dan cast in my well, you know, my former boss in Atlanta took on the Dodgers in 2012. I just felt honored that he asked me if I would join him here and it was about the time I was finishing up in Baltimore. So, you know, I'm not sure that a West Coast commute would have worked when my children were younger, but they're all over the country now, so we just try to find a place to meet in the middle.
1: Well, I think you you have the confluence of several things. One is that baseball, the teams care about the success of the others. They want each of the stadiums to up the ante and up attendance. You have a singular expertise, and then technology allows you to work that way now. I mean, you couldn't communicate with your family 20 years ago the way you can today.
0: Well, you're right about that. That's all. certainly makes it easier. You're absolutely right. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Leading Voices with ULI podcast hosted by the Urban Land Institute. To learn more about ULI's leadership network or to join ULI as a member, please visit ULI.org.